Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. This is the first snippet of our conversation with Lisa Dukes, where we talk about what happens with the Silicon Valley Bank and the importance of financial risk management. Lisa has had almost 20 years of experience in complex corporate organizations, amassing endless experience in innovation within Treasury, corporate finance and derivatives. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is the series of events that led to the Silicon Valley Bank to fail, a fresh reminder of what financial risk management is and its importance, what happened with the interest rates over the last year, what are the consequences for corporate and corporate treasurers of the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, and much more. Lisa is, again, quite impressive. The conversation might get a bit technical at some points, but we made sure with Hussam to summarize and translate into our own words each section of the episode. Also, if you are very new to Treasury, we highly recommend you to listen first to the following episodes so you can have a better understanding of the different terms tackled in this one. Episode 8 to episode 14 of the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast they are rather short, between 5 and 10 minutes, and provide a high-level overview of what is financial risk management, the different types of risk, where they come from, and how to mitigate them. Last note, before diving into our fascinating conversation with Lisa, we are now on LinkedIn. If you would like to reach out, suggest a topic, ask a question, or simply say hi, we will be happy to have you there. Just look for Corporate Treasury 101, that will be us. With all that being said, please welcome Lisa Dukes. Lisa, can you explain us what exactly happened with the Silicon Valley Bank, please? There is a whole news and blockbuster event that we don't know much about, can you please break it down for us? Yes, there, there are now lots of interesting articles and s summaries of what happened, um, many of which seem to point to a few key components, including failures in interest rate management and poor regulatory oversight, which ultimately led to a run on withdrawals and its subsequent collapse. SVB had a huge and highly concentrated deposit base in addition to concentration customers from specialising in tech companies. Their deposits had grown significantly over the last few years following the pandemic, and they chose to invest a lot of that into much longer-dated US government bonds. Now, whilst those themselves are not necessarily risky, without appropriate interest rate swaps to hedge the interest rate risk caused by that difference in duration, that created a significant asset and liability mismatch. So as interest rates started to increase at the rate of knots that it has done, naturally the value of the bonds went down. And at the same time that coincided with a tech recession when depositors needed back their money. Mm. So to honor the withdrawals, they needed to start selling those bonds, which crystallized the losses, essentially creating a perfect storm. And as you would expect, as the word of SVB's difficulties got out, more depositors tried to access their funds, which created a run on the bank. And that's where regulators had to step in to, a, to avoid it impacting the wider financial system. Whilst SVB was the 16th largest bank in the US, 
it wasn't recognised as a globally systemically important bank. Although I think it's fair to say that the impacts have been felt globally, with markets spooked enough to have a knock-on to the more strategically important credit suites, which needed to be rescued only a matter of days later. I suppose the only other loosely interesting point is that it's been highlighted around the quirks of accounting presentation and should accounting treatment drive commercial actions. There's very different accounting treatments for assets held to maturity versus those available for sale. And only the latter requires you to disclose gains and losses in the accounts and that perhaps masked or contributed to a failure to hedge, leaving them massively exposed to a levered interest rate position when the rates kind of increase. Okay. So it sounds very much like there was a, an alignment of planets, as we say in French. I'm not sure that's an expression, <laughs> but quite a lot of events that occurred provoking this uh, downfall and, and like suit of events. You, you mentioned quite sometimes accounting and AFS. What are those exactly? Uh, AFS, so available for sale. There's two ways of recording them. So you can have available for sale or held to maturity. If you hold something to maturity, that sits on the balance sheet, as, as it says on the tin, really, until the end of the life of those bonds. If you sell a single bond that is marked held for maturity, then you have to realise them all as available for sale, which is where the, the P&L volatility comes onto the balance sheet, uh, onto the P&L. Okay, so j just to help you understand here and make sure it's clear for us. When you hold an asset, it has an accounting value that might be different for from the market value. That would be the idea. And depending on where Correct. you sell it, you would yeah, you would have a, a result which would be negative or positive depending on well the actual value at which you uh, at which you sell it compared to how it was written on your balance sheet. Is that correct? Yeah. So the the value at which you buy an asset for will obviously change over time. Yeah. And um, if if you are going to sell that before it matures or uh, reaches the end of its life, then you mark to market that position on your accounts. If you hold it to maturity, you don't have to mark to market that position. Okay. And so mark to market, just for our audience, is comparing the price of at which it's actually valued against how you how much you bought it or how much right. value the asset was valued when you bought it. Essentially, yes. Super clear. I'm going to ask, do you declare which bonds you're planning to hold to maturity and which ones you're going to sell like ahead of time? Or is it only at the point of sale? Like, How does, from accounting point of view, how do you, while you're holding the bonds, how do you declare if they're marked to maturity or not? Uh, so full disclosure, I am an accountant, but I am not active in uh, accounting <laughs> in a technical sense, but you do have to define at the point you purchase them, whether you're going to have it accounted for as available for sale or held to maturity. So you can't change that during the course. Super clear. So on top of the accounting rules that, that, that were in action here, you mentioned quite some uh, topics that are related to financial risk management. We, um, we had a full series on this uh, on, on the show, uh, but it's quite a long time ago now. Would you mind like refreshing our minds on what do you consider financial risk management is? No, absolutely. So for me, financial risk management covers the end-to-end -end process, including the identification, analysis, management, and reporting of all potential risks that an entity faces. 
Now, that could include market risk like FX, interests, or inflation, but also it could be credit, liquidity, operational, or legal risks, amongst others. Now, all risks, whether any action is taken or not, should still be captured, measured, and reported on. Mm-hmm. And you should agree a strategy uh, to manage as appropriate to reduce that risk to an acceptable level. It's also key to ensure that the policy is challenged and, and viewed through the lens of the current market as well as changes to the business, or it can become rapidly outdated and not fit for purpose to cater for any forthcoming market challenges. So creating a policy that has a, a flexible framework also helps with that. And in that process, it's important to understand what the acceptable and unacceptable positions of those financial risks under management are. It's also key to consider the correlation between moves in different financial risks, like FX, uh, inflation or interest, as they can impact the companies in different ways. Some may offset and, and some may actually compound each other. Okay. And you, so you mentioned when explaining um, high level how the SVB event happened, that there was quite some failures in risk management. So leaking with what you just broke down, um, how do we link this to SVB? Is it because they didn't have those policies you just mentioned that are preventing this kind of events or at least mitigating them? Or what's the matter here? They did have interest rate hedges in place, but the difference between having the the deposits from their customers and the investments that they have made longer term, the difference between those two trades almost are different tenors. And obviously, each different tenor has an uh, its own interest rate assumptions behind them, and they can move in very, very different ways. So without having an interest rate risk management approach to match the difference in those two products, to make sure that any market moves were being offset either by the, the the two instruments, but also any additional moves were counteracted by the interest rate hedging, that would have meant there was less volatility going through and there was more certainty on ultimately the returns of SBB. That appears not to have been in place. So it sounds like the interest rates is what triggered most of it, right? Is, is that, that like, was the final... Like the straw, straw that broke the camel's back, or as they say? I think it was a combination of lots of things. But from what I've seen, um, it did contribute quite significantly. I mean, traditionally, as interest rates increased, the value of the longer dated US bonds decreased. So if you're not hedging that difference um, using derivatives or some other managing that basis risk, then you will be exposed. Now, over the last however many years, it's probably too many to count, but we've been in that is almost a zero interest rate environment. So it hasn't really made any difference. So whether people have been numb to it, that's uh, one possibility. But mm-hmm. the, the fundamental principles of risk management probably weren't followed as closely as they should have been. So, so on the just to touch on the interest rates point then, so what, what's happening globally with interest rates? Oh, I mean... Clearly, they've gone up. And we've already touched it, I think, in a previous episode, but maybe you could just remind everyone, like, what's happening in the trades globally? Why are they going up? What's going on in the market uh, in general that, that caused this? Uh, so, yeah. so it's been a crazy few, well, few months or maybe even more, but mm. we've seen the most dramatic raises in global interest rates in over five decades in response to multi-year highs in inflation. 
volatility as a result has become more elevated and we've seen major breakout spikes in both the UK and the US. And that's quite new to many in the market. And from an interest rate management perspective, this changed market backdrop needs considering in the overall approach to capital structure and choice of derivative. We're now reaching the point where central banks are potentially slowing down or, or reaching the pivot points. And I think Australia and Canada have noted that they are pausing. For most territories, we're now seeing, starting to see falling market expectations. So the yield curves have started to invert, which typically can occur pre a recession. The, the short dated yield curve are now closest to the steepest it's been in, in history, which probably doesn't bode that well. But coming back to the rising inflation, that's been largely as a com- consequence of a few factors. Firstly, supply chain pressures and, and bottlenecks coming out of the pandemic and resulting restricted working practices from, from COVID. The non-USD countries, that's probably been aggravated by weaker currencies as well. Um, and there's also been volatility in commodities, in part, although not solely linked to the Ukraine war, but also the wider movements in oil and other uh, commodities. The difficulty in managing inflation is that the longer it lasts, the more people's expectations creep up. And we see core inflation being badged as sticky. Um, and inflation can become very emotive. So governments and central banks are keen to address it quickly, which with Monetary policy is most affected through increasing rates and tightening of money supply and credit conditions. And, and that's what we've been seeing recently. Okay. You, you mentioned quite sometimes this notion of um, volatility. Why does it increase when interest rates do? What, what's the link here for my, for my curiosity? So volatility is not linked to just interest rates. It's just a measure of I suppose market unrest and how the market perceives rates could go up and down in any specific market. Now that could be interest, it could be FX, and it could be anything. So the higher the volatility, the the greater a risk premium the market is inferring in the underlying market. Which, if you were to buy an option, is um, makes options very expensive because the market is more likely to be difficult or maybe thin liquidity as well impacting there. If it's very low volatility, then it's actually quite cheap to buy options because the market's not really expecting uh, the market to do a lot. Okay, so if I if I was to to put it in in simpler words, here volatility could be linked to uncertainty, right? Because of how uncertain the market is the tools in order to hedge your risk against this volatility are more expensive because we don't know where it's going to go. And the providers of those services don't know where it's going to go. So they hedge themselves before helping others to hedge themselves by making the price of the instrument expensive. Is that? Yeah, essentially, um, the higher the volatility in the market, the more likely or uncertain there is baked into the numbers. So um, there is a, a risk premium associated with trading in the market. Now, if you're hedging, that's fine. You, you're just locking in the certainty. But obviously, uh, there's different products utilized in the markets. Super clear. So if I could, if I could try and summarize in my, my dumb brain uh, exactly what, <laughs> so what we're basically saying is that inflation is going up generally uh, due to different factors coming out of the pandemic, the war, uh, causing currency uh, issues, overall increase in spending for whatever reason, driven inflation up. 
for which governments and uh, central banks are raising interest rates to try and combat that, right? Right. Now, what happened in the case of SVP, SVB is that they had all these bonds, which were long-term bonds, which were bought perhaps at a time when the interest rates were much lower, which kind of made sense. However, they didn't cover their backs with those because maybe they didn't think interest rates were going to go so high. So they didn't like adequately put risk measures in place. So when the interest rates kept going up and up and up and then hit a certain critical point, their bonds lost value, which got everyone scared, which made everyone go and take their money out of the bank. But then, you know, banks don't hold money or everyone's money all the time. Is that, is that like a, a monkey version of it? I, yeah, I think so. But it was there was also additional factors. So um, it coincided with the concentrated customer base that they had all at the same time mm. needed their money back because there was a tech recession. So uh, if everybody's asking for their money back, but where they'd deposited their money in long-term bonds, if that had decreased in value and they're less easy to liquidate, they crystallize losses from having to sell the bonds at a lower price than what they mm. bought them for. And then it, it just spirals. Spirals. And get, mm. Yeah. So there's also the tech, the tech recession or and all these tech companies having all these issues. They were coming in to take their deposits out, which also meant that SVB, to get the money, had to sell the bonds at a, uh, at a loss. Correct, yeah. Uh, okay, very cool. That makes sense. Overall, what would they have done, what could they have done better to, let's say, manage that interest rate? How would you describe what would have been the correct risk management strategy that they should have had in place? So, well, interest rate risk management in its purest form is managing the risk associated with capital. Now, that could be cash or debt or an offset between all of uh, the above. So, for example, if someone enters into a floating rate debt with maturity of three years, you might want to swap some or all of that floating rate interest to a fixed coupon or, or vice versa. But having or knowing what your underlying exposure is and matching that with the hedge that um, you're putting on to remove that volatility is typically what we mean by uh, interest rate risk management. Interest rates and all forms of risk management for that matter should be constantly assessed and modified to suit the changing shape of financial markets and also the business trajectory. That will include managing the primary risks. So that might be interest rates, could be FX, inflation, or, or others. And um, will involve managing the credit line risk. So making sure you maintain the ability to hedge going forward. Um, managing the counterparty risk. So making sure that counterparties on all sides are suitably, I suppose, uh, so counterparty risk can be to your customers or or. Um, to your stakeholders, so for corporates, it would be the banks. So understanding those risks as well. The, there's liquidity and refinancing risks. So understanding that is is quite key as well. And also managing the strategy and economic risks that you're trying to enable and protect. I mentioned credit line risk, and um, it's worth remembering that credit line utilization can be quite high for longer dated swaps. Speaking with a, a corporate hat on, you need to have very careful considerations and, and get a balance to that. 
I'm not a, a bank specialist, so I, I can't comment on how banks go around and, and manage their risks. Um, but for corporates, I think one of the most interesting things is not necessarily managing the here and now, but managing where the business could be and how you can actually shape and enable that strategy. Okay, um, so you touched upon a, a very interesting point here, Lisa, which is the consequences for the corporates, right? And how how they can learn about this event. But before going into this and remaining a little bit 360 degrees view, uh, are there any other wider risks that should be considered? Yeah, there are probably many, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <immediately. obviously. laughs> um, so you immediately jumped to mind to consider in the context of overall capital rate management and being inflation risk and cross-currency interest rate risk. Probably both worth a session in their own right, but ultimately they follow similar principles to what we've already discussed, trying to manage the underlying exposure on a long-term basis in a credit-efficient manner. However, as things are never simple, there are always other intricacies and correlations to consider. So, for example, cross-currency opportunities or even necessities, there Often, usually for larger notional or where an organization can tap a market in multiple currencies, or on the inflation side, perhaps where a company is structurally exposed to inflation by considering inflation essentially as a real rate rather than a nominal rate, there may be other opportunities to secure effective hedges of their holistic exposure. But I suppose the key point is that whilst it's okay to have a market view, The goal is to manage the risk efficiently to enable business strategy, which in simple terms means ensuring liquidity, the future P&L, and that the financial covenants are managed and understood. And, and that will be vastly different for a leveraged business versus a, a low-levered business where the sensitivity and impact is far smaller. There are also a few structural aspects of the market to consider in terms of approach on execution and market skew that you could potentially benefit from, but that's probably not one for today. A very, a very neat, but uh, why not for a future episode, actually, <laughs> to be quite, uh, quite on point. And maybe something that um, we, we didn't discuss earlier, but uh, that I'm thinking about now, we talk about, about risk, uh, impacts, uh, consequences, bad consequences. Are there any opportunities out of this? And I'm asking myself this question because you might have very cash-rich company. So once they have sorted out the counterparty risk aspect, which is, well, your bank can basically fail. Or it's likely that you get your money back from the government or, or, or in, in, in any ways. But are there opportunities, for instance, interest rate rising? If you want to invest, that's much more profitable for you. Or are there other things that we do not obviously think of when we're in such a context, but that could be an opportunity? Absolutely. Wherever there's risks, there's opportunities and um, it's making sure you're positioned for a position of strength to be able to manage the risk, but also capture any opportunities as they arise. If, like I said, if you have lots of cash, you can deposit that and get a, a greater return. So that that's great for you. But also, the, whilst the, the markets themselves are very volatile, there are other opportunities. So people who need to hedge inflation, for example, it makes sense for them to lock in inflation now um, at their all-time highs. So having policies and structures to enable you to manage risk effectively, but also react proactively to market opportunities as they arrive is, is very important as a risk manager. So Lisa, what's the, um, the wider implications like in the broader 
market for banks or corporates that's, that's come out of all of this? So it's likely to accelerate the credit tightening cycle, which will obviously impact corporates, particularly those with less favourable credit, or they will likely suffer more in terms of price and liquidity. The general expectation is for credit spreads to widen substantially, so it's important to consider what de-risking can be done in terms of near-term capital needs. And that should also consider the use and merits of derivatives as part of that exercise. Interestingly, we've actually been exploring interest rate structures for corporates and looking for ways to help get certainty over the near term, but at swap rates much lower actually than, than current rates. It's a very interesting process and probably will appeal to a number of corporates, including those with higher in leverage or near term financing needs or perhaps lower credit strength. But I, I think it's clear that innovative or more dynamic solutions are out there to meet some of the additional complications that are coming out of the, the market events that we're seeing. Very interesting. So generally, like, so banks are maybe less likely to, to lend um, longer term loans. There's, there's going to be a tightening overall of, is it something similar to 2008 where banks just shut down? Do you see, foresee that happening out of this? Your guess is good as mine, I think. Um, I think there have been very specific reasons why SVB and Signature and Credit Suisse have all got into difficulties. And it's always important to avoid complacency. Clearly, the, the new raft of bank failures may be a bit of a wake-up call for the regulations currently in place. For example, are they still fit for purpose given the changing technologies over the years? Perhaps the flow and ease of transfer of money is materially quicker and easier globally. So if there is a run on the bank, it's very easy for someone to go on the computer and withdraw their money. And many of the financial stress tests are applied according to size and jurisdiction. But the shockwaves felt that impacted Credit Suisse's market price. Those shockwaves came from bank failure that wasn't considered systemically important. Uh, so will that change going forward? And I will leave that to those who are more informed than me. Super clear.